you have ever just felt like in life that that you're searching for happiness that'll really last, only to feel like you just come up empty time after time? You ever feel that way? I mean, you just ever feel like you know I, I haven't asked for great wealth or for success or for fame. I don't really ask for a lot. But do you ever just feel like the only big thing that I ever really wanted in life was just to be happy, only to find that that was really an elusive thing to find lasting happiness. Well, if you've ever felt that way, this series that we're stepping into is for you. Uh, for the next several, several weeks, uh, today and through the months of June and July, I'm going to be uh, teaching a series that's about how to find lasting happiness in life. And we're going to be doing a verse-by-verse study through a book of the New Testament and we're going to start into that today, but for just a couple of minutes before we get into that, I just want to share some, some basic truths. We're going to call them the laws of happiness, and they're not tied to any verses. They're just kind of some general things. No extra charge for these. I'm just going to give you this before we get started to chew on and as a jumping off point. So I want to just start with four laws of happiness for you to think about. And the first one is this. When it comes to, to finding lasting happiness, don't look for happiness. Seek to create it. It's not a commodity for you to chase and capture. It's something that you've got to create. And we're going to talk about today at the beginning part of how you create that, that you, you really can be as happy as you choose to be. The second law is this, that happiness isn't a goal. It's the result of right thinking and right living. If you fall into the trap, as people oftentimes will do, of thinking, well, the one thing I want in life is to be happy, and I deserve to be happy, and they make that their main pursuit, you can count on this. That person isn't going to be happy. If you make that your goal, it's a self-centered goal. It can't be the aim of your life. Everything I do is to pursue my own happiness. No, it's the byproduct of some other things, some healthy choices, some right living. And so, anyway, that, that brings us to the next truth, and that is that my habits, ultimately more than anything else, will create my happiness, and then happiness is a choice, because I get to choose my habits, and, and the way life works is, you know, we form our habits, typically in about the first 30 to 40 years of our lives, and then our habits form us for the rest of our lives. Wouldn't you agree with that? You, you spend the first few decades of your life figuring out how you're going to do things and developing some habits about how you do it, and then you spend the last 30, 40, 50 years of your life just repeating that behavior again and again. And so what I'm going to share with you today, what we'll be talking about a lot in this series, is forming some habits that are probably going to be different from some of the ones that you have right now, that if you'll put them into practice, they are not complicated. I promise you, these will not be beyond you. It's just going to be a matter of whether or not you choose to practice them. That if you do these things, the byproduct of that is going to be a much happier, healthier life, and it's just going to be tied to habits. And the final law that I'll give you is this is that happiness based on happenings is very temporary. Happiness that is built on good habits is long-lasting. You already know this. You already know these truths that I'm sharing. That you know, There are circumstances that will create happiness for me. Going to the beach is one of them. I love the beach. I love knowing I get to go to the beach for the day. That makes me very happy. Forgetting to put on sunscreen, getting scorched, means my happiness does not last until sundown. It does not take long for that happiness to wear off. I love to go on vacation. 
I love to go on trips. But if my happiness is just dependent upon my circumstances, when I come home from vacation and I get my statement for my credit card and I realize how much that trip cost, my happiness is short-lived. All kinds of things that, you know, the circumstances designed for my happiness. I go to a movie that you tell me is going to be a great movie. Well, I love going to the movies and I get there and I find out that sucker's really a dud. My happiness doesn't even make it all the way to the bottom of my popcorn bag if it's based on circumstances. But if I can learn some, some lifestyle habits which consistently produce happiness and a sense of satisfaction, then I can have happiness most of the time. And I'm going to tell you, the stuff we're going to talk about today, it is as practical as it gets. And if you'll put it into practice... Again, the, the title of the series is a bit of a misnomer because we, we just said happiness doesn't need to be the primary goal of your life. And the title of the series is How to Have Lasting Happiness. But I'm telling you, if you'll practice these habits, you're going to find yourself with a more consistent sense of joy and satisfaction, just enjoyment in life. So with that said, let me tell you where we're going to go in the series, and that is to the book of Philippians. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up with me. And I know I kind of spoil you to the fact that I normally put all the scripture references in the outline. But I'm going to tell you for the summer, I really want you to bring your Bibles because we're going to be doing pretty much a verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And it's the perfect book for us to be studying for this series because it is the happiest book of the Bible. Absolutely. It's a little bitty book. I mean, it's all of, uh, in my NIV here, it's all of three pages. It's four little chapters. Even if you're not a fast reader, you can read the whole thing in 15 minutes. But let me tell you part of what you'll find if you read through this little, little book. It is a thank you letter that has the six words, joy, glad, enjoy, rejoice, happy, and happiness. Those six words, wouldn't you agree, all of those are pretty happy, good words, good emotions. They are there 17 times in four little chapters. More than four times a chapter. You'll run across them more than once a minute as you read through the whole book. It is the happiest book of the Bible. Okay, can I tell you what's really weird about that? Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul from prison. Not prison in the modern sense where you've got cable TV and, you know, fairly comfortable life that you've got a mattress and all that kind of stuff. He's in an ancient prison in Rome in a time where Christians are really not being treated well at all in Rome. And, oh, by the way... He's going to wind up being executed for his faith. And from that circumstance, Paul writes the happiest letter of the New Testament, where just from start to finish, as you're reading this, you just sort of, when I read the way that Paul is writing, the picture that keeps coming to mind for me, this may sound silly for you, but do you remember the scene in A Christmas Carol where on Christmas morning, Ebenezer Scrooge is just beside himself. And he, he makes the statement, oh, I don't deserve to be this happy, but I just can't help myself. You get that feeling from Paul when he's writing this. It's just, I'm so full of joy. I just, you know, I could say it again and again. That I, I've just got such a great sense of joy and happiness in life. And, you know, there's a part of you that's just going, dude, what are you taking? I want some of it. It's, it's good. You're in a filthy stinking lockup and you're going to wind up losing your life and you're going to be there for a long time before you lose your life. And he's full of joy. So uh, this thank you letter becomes for us a great template for, okay, how is it that I have the kind of joy that he has? Okay, if you're going to write a letter 
to somebody else who's really struggling, who's down, who's having a hard time finding hope, wanting to move forward in life, and you're the one who's going to pen a letter that's going to spell out for them some of the real keys to life and to lasting happiness. Where would you start? Would it be with, you know, if you're going to be happy, you've got to have a satisfying career. You've got to have a comfortable home. You get, what, what would be the beginning point? Well, I'll tell you what the beginning point is in Paul's letter. It's relationships. You're going to find that the opening of this letter that we're going to look at today, the first thing that he's going to talk about is relationships. Well, why would that be the first thing that you're going to talk about if you were going to write a letter about having lasting happiness in life? Well, there's no great mystery about that. Because... Pretty much your life is only going to be as good. You're going to be only as happy as the health of the key relationships in your life are good or bad. I mean, everybody knows the old adage for a married man. If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, right? What's that all about? If things aren't good at home between me and mama, I can't be happy. I mean, we've all seen it. Unfortunately, a lot of us have experienced it. You can have everything else in life going for you. You can have good health. You can have plenty of money in the bank. You can have a great job. Everything else seems to be going great. You'd have every reason in the world to just be on top of the world so happy. But you just so happen to be going through a divorce in that season of life. Anybody want to take a wild guess how happy that person is on any given day when they're in the midst of a divorce? It feels like life stinks. Everybody who's been through a divorce, nod your head. Uh-huh, I know what you're talking about because everything else can be good. But if the key relationship in your life is going down the drain, you aren't happy. It starts with healthy relationships. And so Paul, he's not going to give us a how-to letter. But as we look at what he has to say, well, we're going to glean some very practical how-tos. What we're going to see today in the passage that we'll look at in Philippians 1, 1 through 11, is we'll discover three habits. We said your, your happiness is very much tied to the habits in your life. We're going to glean from this three very practical habits to have healthier relationships. And so we begin with verse 1 of chapter 1, where he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul is never quick to open a letter. This is where you or I would say, Dear Tom. If this were Medea writing the letter, this would be the how y'all doing part. You know, it's just, it's just the opener. Now that we've gotten the greeting out of the way, we're going to get to the meat of the matter beginning in verse 3 where he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains for defending and confirming the gospel, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Three things that I want you to notice here. And I just want to say on the front end, well, first of all, a question. How many of you would say, just as a, as a confession this morning, that there is at least one relationship in my life that matters that I would love for it to be better than it is right now? Anybody besides me deal with that? Wow! Got a lot of people with relationships that need to be improved. That's, that's not a shocker. We probably all do. Now the question is, are you willing to make some little adjustments so that they could be healthier relationships and you could be at a healthier, better place as a result? Because... Everything I'm fixing to share with you is completely doable. I, I'll promise you this. This is one of those messages, I don't care if you're 10 years old, you'll understand what I'm saying. And this today is going to be so simple and so easy to apply in terms of, of what does it take to do it. I promise you, you can apply today's message by the time you get to your car to leave to go home. The question isn't whether or not you'll understand or if it's doable. The question is just very simply, will you make some adjustments to very doable things that will make a huge difference in relationships and are ultimately going to spill over to leave you at a much healthier and happier place in life? This is one of those, it's not about can I understand it, it's am I willing to do it? And it starts with this first very simple habit that we see Paul modeling for us and it is that I must be grateful for the people who are in my life. He opens up the letter. Just, you can hear a heart completely full of gratitude. And Folks, outside of Christian circles, all kinds of, of psychologists and sociologists who have studied uh, relationships and happiness in life, they come to the same conclusion again and again, and that is that gratitude and happiness are integrally, integrally linked together. That one goes hand in hand with the other. And there's probably nothing else that is more clearly linked to a person's sense of happiness and well-being as much as gratitude. Simple fact. People who are grateful for what they have and who they have in their life, those are the happiest people in the world. The flip side of that is, people who, who really don't have a great sense of, of gratitude, they have more of a sense of entitlement and just taking things and people for granted, they are the most unhappy people that you know. Part of what this means is, just in real simple terms, if you grew up in a home where everything was handed to you, where life was served to you on a silver platter, where you didn't have to work for anything, life just came easy for you, and you just sort of came up feeling like the world was supposed to serve you, Odds are really good that you don't carry a deep sense of gratitude for much of what you have. And that correlates very strongly with just a general sense of discontentment and unhappiness in life. This helps to explain why we'll go to third world countries, and, and I just continue to be amazed as many times as I've done this, we'll go to a place like Cuba and we'll look at people who live in such poverty, we'll go... Uh, into Africa and see people who just, it's hard for us to fathom how they live. You know, they don't own hardly any clothes beyond what's on their backs. Many of them live in mud and stick huts with, with dirt floors. And, you know, they just, 
live day to day and it's a happy day if they had food to eat for that day and yet to spend time with them and get to know them there is this incredible sense of joy and contentment and we look at that and go how in the world could they be happy they don't have hardly anything at all it's that basic American misunderstanding that having more stuff makes you more happy. No, it's not about how much stuff you have. It's about being grateful for the people and the things that you do have. The person who has gone without so much in their lives and they actually have a meal set before them to eat, they have such a heart of gratitude for that. The person who has who's lived in a place where you know, they just don't have a lot of people around them who care for them and they wind up having a friend or a spouse who's faithful to them and they're so grateful for that. That leads to such a greater sense of overall happiness in life. Paul begins the meat of his letter by saying in verse 3, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. He's basically saying, I, I just, when I think of you, I focus on all the good stuff. I remember the best parts about you. And this is the power of a good relationship, isn't it? Remembering the best. Choosing to always remember the best. I mean, I, I promise you this. The moment that you stop doing this, married people, the moment that you stop doing this with your spouse, folks that are dating or engaged, the moment you stop doing this with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiancé, the moment that you stop choosing to always dwell on, to always focus in on the very best in that person and the good things that you've shared together is the moment that you start going downhill, the moment that you start slipping toward a black hole that is difficult to recover from. This will kill a relationship when you stop intentionally deciding, I'm going to remember the best. I'm going to remember why I fell in love with her. I'm going to remember what, we, what made me want to marry him. The day you stop doing that, you put your relationship in terrible jeopardy. That's the beginning of the end when you let yourself stop focusing on and giving thanks for the good things in that person. I want to ask you to be honest. When you think of the people who are around you, you think of the people you come in contact with in your household or throughout your week, what's the first thing that comes in your mind when you think about these other people who you bump into a lot, who, who live alongside you? Is your first thought, I'm just so grateful for her. Man, I'm, I'm so grateful for him. If we're honest, I think a lot of us would have to say, eh, probably not the first thing I think of. Because it, isn't it just such a human nature kind of thing that our minds migrate toward the negative? That we tend to very quickly, when we think of someone else, we, we tend to more often remember how they've disappointed us, remember how they let us down, remember when they've last hurt us. It's like the sinful nature in us is going to hold on to and remember because it's like, I, I don't want to be let down again. I don't want to be hurt again. And so we'll hold on to that. What Paul is modeling for us is the opposite of that. Where he's going, it's not that these people were super spiritual giants. I mean, Paul is the one who founded this church and he didn't get to be there for very long. And so he's just ministering to very ordinary people who know this much about Jesus and about faith. And they didn't just suddenly just spring to maturity. He's dealing with very broken, very ordinary people who've just come to Christ. And so it's not like, oh, there's just so much wonderful stuff to remember about them because they were so mature. No, they were baby Christians. And I'm sure they had all the baggage that comes with them being baby Christians. But Paul said, there are some really 
sweet, good things that I remember. I remember how you prayed for me. You had good reason to pray for me. We're going to review in a minute why that is. I remember how you helped me. You even took up a collection more than once and sent to assist me, even while I've been in prison and, and haven't had you know, much to eat, hardly any possessions, and yet you were willing to send a love offering to me. You even sent Epaphroditus to me and just all the different things that you've done to encourage me. And I choose to hold on to and remember those things. That is a choice and that is a habit. You already have some habits as to how you think about people. Some of you have the habit of rehearsing what they've done to you. Some of you have the habit of imagining what's going to happen next and imagining less than optimistic things. Some of you have the habit of remembering the good and giving thanks for that. That's what Paul models for us. He says in verse 5, I thank God for the help that you gave me as he's remembering the the assistance and the things that they've done. So many of us are just discontent by nature. Have you ever noticed that? We're just, whatever we've got, is just not as good as it could be. We just wish that we had something more. And, you know, we, we have the habit already, either of rehearsing what we should have and what we wish we had, or of giving thanks for what we do have and who we have in our lives. And Paul is saying... Boy, every time I think about you, every time you come to mind, I just rehearse again and give thanks again for who you are and for what you've done. Now, I want to tell you why that's such an amazing thing. He's writing to whom? The church in Philippi. And I realize it's easy for us to kind of jumble all these things up and it's like, yeah, Paul went to a lot of different places and founded a lot of different churches. Let me encourage you as you're reading assignment for this week, go back and reread Acts chapter 16. It is the narrative of Paul founding the church in Philippi. Can I give you the really short version of what happened when he went to Philippi? He, he shows up there, and there is no Christian church. There, there are no believers at all. And he winds up going out by the river, and he runs into a woman named Lydia who's just going to find a place to pray. And he ends up leading her to Christ and her family and, and some other people. But along the way, some people who uh, are not Christians. He's all the time making Jews mad who, who have not bought into Christ and Christianity. And they get angry at him because of, of the message that he's sharing. And so they take him roughly and they strip him. And they, it, the Scripture says they flogged him severely. And then they put him in jail. And then when they released him from jail, the city leaders came together and said, we want you to get out of this town. And Paul left town. That's his experience in Philippi. And Paul says to the Christians in Philippi, Oh man, when I think back to you and I remember you, I am so thankful. I am so appreciative. I, I have such fond memories of you. Okay, let's try and put this in context. Suppose you take a little vacation this summer and you go, I don't know, somewhere way out west or maybe up in Appalachia and you wind up in a town that's sort of cut off. Maybe it's a little backwoods or whatever. And while you're staying there, something way, way out of the ordinary happens. Some good old boys kick in the door of your hotel room and they grab you and they drag you out and they say, we heard what you did. We heard that you slept with so-and-so's husband or so-and-so's wife and we know that you did it. And they take you out and they publicly strip you. They beat the tar out of you. Then they lock you up in the local jail. 
oh, by the way, there's an earthquake while you're there that you have to survive. And when all that's said and done, the city leaders come and pull you out of jail and say, when the sun goes down, your backside better not be in this town. Get out of Dodge. And so you leave that town. And that's the last time you've been to that town. Now, when you're writing in your journal sometime later about your happy visit to that lovely community, you tell me what kind of thoughts you have about the people in that town. I mean, you and I, we'd be going berserk, wouldn't we? That's the sorriest town I've ever been to. It was a nightmare. I can't stand those people. I hope the wrath of God is poured out on those people. Paul writes a letter back to the believers in Philippi and says, Man, you all just give me so much joy. Are you starting to feel that there's something special about this guy and this letter and the gratitude that he carries? He was able to truly say, man, I give thanks for you. In spite of the terrible circumstances and the rotten stuff that happened to me, I choose to remember the best. That there were some good people. There were some people who showed me kindness. There were some people who showed me favor. And I am selectively choosing what I'm going to remember. Now let me ask you this. Is your happiness today being fouled up because of some very painful memories of what some folks have done to you in the past? Maybe what one particular someone has done to you. Maybe there's one particular event in life and it has just left you so unhappy. Business partner, partner cheated you. Did you wrong. You went bankrupt because of what they did. And you've never been able to get over it. Never found happiness again. Your boyfriend or girlfriend, fiance, husband or wife cheated on you. You've never been able to get over it. The, the sting of that is still there been through a divorce, or maybe, maybe your parents have been through a divorce, and that has so impacted you, and it just it leaves you hurt or mad, and you just can't seem to let that go. I mean, we could just go on and on with the kinds of things that happen to us, and they just leave us feeling like, I just don't think I could ever be happy again. You, you bear on the inside of you the scars of that event, of the damage that that person or situation did to you, but here's the thing you have to understand. It's up to you. You can live in the pain of that for the rest of your life. And if that's what you want to do, knock yourself out. But don't expect anybody else to sympathize with you years down the line when you chose to remember and hold on to the pain because you bear the scars on the inside. Because I want to tell you, the guy who's writing this letter, he didn't just bear scars on the inside. He could show you the scars. He could pull up his tunic and go, you want to see what Philippi did to me? Let me show you the stripes, the scars up and down my back where they stripped me down and they beat me down. I bear not just in here, but back here. I bear the scars of what others did to me. But you know what? I am full of joy because I don't choose to linger on the hurt from the past. I make a conscious choice to remember the good and to give thanks for that. To give thanks. Yeah, were there some rotten, mean, dirty people who hurt me? You better know there were. And they outnumbered the good. But guess what? 
I choose to remember and give thanks for the good. And it made all the difference. Now, in this series, I'm going to give you every week just a handful. Today, I'm going to give you three of them. Three happiness hints. And I've just labeled them HH in your notes. And these are just going to be very short, simple, easy to apply, or simple to apply truths for living with real happiness in your life. And the first one is this. First happiness hint is remember the best and forget the rest. That's not hard to remember, is it? Say it with me. Remember the best, forget the rest. That's your choice. Do do you want to be a sourpuss and a sad sack for the rest of your life? If you do, I'll give you an easy recipe for it. You just keep on rehearsing and remembering the most disappointing, disheartening things that have been done to you and that happened to you. And I'll guarantee you, you'll live unhappy and sour for the rest of your days. Or the alternative, remember the best and just choose to forget the rest. I promise you, everybody who is close to you for an extended period of time, they're going to disappoint you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to let you down. But you know what else? Most of those same people are going to surprise you with good at other times. They're going to love you at times when you didn't deserve to be loved. They're going to be there for you when other people weren't there for you. And it's up to you which part you're going to remember. So as just the very beginning point, do you consciously rehearse what a good thing it is that you have this person in your life? And do you express that gratitude to God and to them. You want to apply the first thing that we're talking about today? I mean, particularly like that, there's probably a person in your life, one or two people that, oh man, they just feel like they seem to be a source of a lot of the difficulty and a lot of the unhappy moments. And, and it's somebody that's going to continue to be a part of your life. You know, how do you apply this with them? Well, choose to focus in on the good. You, you want a real healthy exercise? Go home. And you, you make that list of, you know, whatever, two or three names of, of people that have caused a lot of trouble and angst for you. And just determine under each of those names, I'm going to list five to ten things about them, either about their character and who they are or what they've done that I am really grateful for. Spell it out. And then turn around and make that a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And then over time, just begin to make a point of going to that person and thanking them for who they are and for what they've done. And don't just apply that in the hard relationships. I mean, pause to consider the people who are closest to you. Your spouse, your parents, your siblings, your closest friends. Do you express your thanks to them? Do you ever just say, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. And I'm so glad God put you in my life. And let me tell you some of why I'm so thankful for you. It's what Paul's doing. It's the first key to healthier relationships. This attitude of gratitude. The second habit is this. I need to pray for the people in my life. Don't just be grateful for them, but pray for them. Doesn't it encourage you when somebody comes along and says, I have been praying for you and I'm still praying for you. Man, that is fuel for my tank right there. It means so much to me from time to time when people will come along and say, I've been praying for you this week. Occasionally somebody will say, do you know, I pray my family, we pray for you every single day. I can't tell you how much that encourages me. And I know it does the same thing for you, knowing that others are praying for you. And it, it actually impacts me. I, I, there are times, 
And I think you'll know what I'm talking about. I can't explain it, but there are times without anybody telling me, I just know people are praying for me. It's like I just, I have this sense of, boy, God is just pouring out on me what I need at a level that I haven't asked for. It's just getting poured out. And there are just moments, I, I think it's the Holy Spirit just whispering it in the deepest part of my heart, just letting me know, boy, there are people praying for you, and I'm just responding to that. I'm just loading you up with what you need right now because some other people ask me to do that, and in response, I'm dumping it out on you. And there are just times I'm just walking in strength, in grace, in joy, and power that I didn't muster up because you prayed for me. Because our prayers impact other people. And Paul said this in verse 4, I always pray for you and I make my request with a heart full of joy. Okay, here's what I want you to do now. I want you to think about that someone who is a, a regular part of your life who irritates you. Now, hang on, I said think about them. Don't look at them right now. Just think about it. I don't want to make this any harder than it has to be. All right, now, here's what I want to ask you. Do you pray for them regularly? Do you pray consistently for them? Or, do you find yourself, more often than you pray for them, do you find yourself complaining about them? Or nagging them? Getting on to them? Correcting them? Telling them what they ought to be doing? Which one do you do more of? The praying or the nagging and correcting. So let me ask you this. How much would you say that nagging gets good results in that relationship? That is a rotten plan, isn't it? I mean, if there's anybody who gets good results out of nagging, then please, you know, come and lecture the rest of us. Because I have never seen that bear good results. Nagging doesn't work. But do you believe that prayer yields positive results? I know that does. I've seen the fruit of that. So, you know, the application here is really simple. Let's do less of the thing that doesn't work and more of the thing that does. To just pray for the people that God has placed in our lives. So the helpful hint is, is a really simple one on this. The quickest way to change a bad relationship into a good one is to start praying for that person. You know, some of us have read books and been, been taught about the power of positive thinking. Well, Paul is showing us that there's something that goes way beyond just positive thinking, and that is positive praying. He said, now, I pray for you all the time with great joy. I, I do this in a real positive way. Now, you may ask, how do I pray? Because wouldn't you agree sometimes it's really hard to pray well for people who drive you crazy? I mean, I, I really find it's more of a struggle to pray for the ones that get on my nerves. Paul gives us a wonderful model prayer. Underline this in your Bible or put brackets around it or star it somehow. I love praying scriptural prayers. There's particular power that's unleashed when we do this. Verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us exactly how to pray for each other. This is how you ought to pray for your boss, how you ought to pray for your spouse, for your kids, for your friends. He says this, four parts to it. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Here's the four things. So practical, you can remember it by the time we walk out the door. He says, he's saying, first of all, when he prays for people, he prays that they will grow in love. Pray that your love will grow more and more. What's that about? Grow in love. Listen, if you want to pray good in another person's life, pray that they'll grow in love, that they'll grow in their love for God, their love for themselves, and their love for other people. 
I mean, if you're going to pray good in somebody's life, first of all, pray. I mean, it's the thing we were created for, a love relationship with God. He said, I am praying that you grow in your love. But if you're around somebody that's miserable and they make you miserable, there's a real good chance they don't love themselves. Pray that they grow in a love relationship with God and that they learn to love themselves because then they'll be freed up to love other people. I pray that you grow in love. Secondly, he's teaching us to pray that that the other person would make wise choices. He says that you will fully know and understand how to make the right choices. Wouldn't that be a good thing for somebody to pray for you and me? Third thing, that you live with integrity, that you may live pure and blameless lives until Christ returns. And then finally, he says, I pray that you become more like Jesus by saying that you become filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ? Well, it's things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The shortest way to say that, just pray that they become more like Christ. So, parents, there is your template. There is your model prayer of how to pray for your kids. Husbands and wives, that's how to pray for your mate. God, I pray that she would grow in love for you, for herself, and for the people around I pray that you would help him to make wise decisions. I pray that you would help her to live with integrity. And Lord, above everything else, I pray that you would help them to become more like you. Pray it for the people in your life. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your pastor. Because here's part of what's beautiful about that. This isn't one of those prayers that you go, well, Lord... If it be thy will, and I'm kind of doubtful that this is going to have any impact, but if it be thy will, would you? No, mm-mm. you can pray with 100% confidence. You're praying the will of God when you pray a scriptural prayer like this. God, I know you want them to grow in love. You want their love relationship with you to grow. You want them to learn to love themselves and the people around them. Lord, I pray that you would help them to grow in love. Man, faith is just unleashed when you do that. I'm praying the word of God. I'm praying the will of God. He's making stuff happen when I pray this. God, I pray that you'd help them to make wise choices. I pray that you would give them a discerning heart. I pray in the will of God. God is speaking in their thoughts as I'm praying that because I'm praying the will and word of God. God, I pray that you help them to live with integrity, to, to have your character and how they live. Man, don't you want that for your kids and yourself and the people around you? And ultimately, I just pray that they look more and more like your son, Jesus. Isn't that good? Simple stuff. That's not hard to understand. It's not hard to remember. That's how we need to pray for each other. There's something that changes in the other person and in us when we pray for them. And a final word about that. Paul said in that verse that he prayed with joy. He didn't come in with an attitude like I'm afraid some of us do. God, I wish to goodness you would whip my husband into shape. He is slacking. I can't get him to do anything. Other man who's going, Lord, I wish you would do something with my wife. She's about to drive me batty. I just wish you would settle her down and at night warm her up. Lord, just do something with my wife. She needs some help. No, that is not praying with joyfully right there. That's praying crankily and grumpily. He said, you know, pray with joy. And then a third and final thing. Don't just live thankfully and don't, don't just pray for people, but expect the best from the people in your life. Paul is the, the master at this. You know, I said earlier, we tend to expect the worst in people rather than the best. And Where does that come from? 
think it comes from our track record. <laughs> we remember all the failures and the times that we've been let down, all the times that they were late, and all the times that they made us late. And, and we just we tend to hang on to those things. And so we tend to expect to be let down and disappointed. Paul chose to make a habit of believing the best about people. In verse 6, it's one of my favorite verses in Philippians. He says, I am confident of this, that God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Would you circle that word confident? I want you to think about who he's talking about. He's writing to people that the last time he saw them, they were baby Christians. They had known about Jesus and Christian faith for a few days or a few weeks. How many spiritual giants do you think he left in Philippi after that? I mean, can't you just imagine how much confusion and how many questions there were, how much immaturity there was, and yet Paul says, I know this. I am so completely confident about you that this thing that had only begun in you when I left you, God is carrying that on. He's going to keep on carrying that on until the work is completed and you look like Jesus. You know what he's doing there? He is building confidence in them. He's letting them know, I expect and I believe in the very best from you. Paul just had this amazing gift for calling out the best in people. And this is how he did it. I'm just, just going to give you a little one, two, three recipe because you can practice the same thing. Paul did three things in calling the best out of people. First of all, he just simply believed in people and that gave them confidence. You, you hear him doing that here. I, I haven't seen, you know, Paul could say, I haven't seen any one of you grow to spiritual maturity. Hadn't been around to watch that. I saw you just barely come to faith in Jesus and, and then I had to take off. But he was able to just let them know, I so believe in you. This is no different than what, you know, many of us in the room are parents. It's no different than what a parent would do. Picture, if you will, that your child is in elementary school or in middle school and they're taking part in a race, an athletic event, and everybody's gathered in the stands and they're lined up and they're doing whatever, the 440 and, the, and they fire the gun. And after, you know, about 100 yards, your child trips and goes down full speed on the track. And you just hear kind of across the, the audience, say, oh, you know, as they've gone down hard. And in that moment, I want you to think about what your response is. How many of you as parents would go, oh, you stupid. What, what were you thinking? Can you not put one foot in front of the other? Are you not the clumsiest child on the track team? I knew you were going to do something like that. I am so disappointed. There's not one person in this room that would respond that way, is there? What kind of cruel parent would do that? No. Every parent worth their salt in that moment is going to get to their feet and go, come on, get back up. You can do it. Get back in the race. I believe in you. I want you to finish. You're going to finish this. I know you can do it. While they're face down on the ground, you're telling them that. You're not saying it based on their performance in the moment. You're telling them how much you believe in them, right? Isn't that what you do as a parent? Aren't you glad God does that? That when you and I stumble and fall and we are on our faces and we don't think we can get back up again and God looks at us and goes, I have not given up on you. In fact, I am absolutely sure that I'm going to get you past where you are right now. I see the finished product and it is good. That's what Paul's doing. 
I am confident that the one who began a good work in you, oh, he's going to finish it. He, he was so good at communicating how he believed in people. But he also, secondly, he gave people vision. And vision is what keeps us growing. He simply was able to paint a picture of what's coming next. As parents, this is so huge for us. Kids don't know what their lives are going to turn into. And, and they're so impacted by the expectations of others. And so for us to help them develop a vision for a future that's good. It's so easy for kids and for teenagers to get pigeonholed into thinking, well, I'm just never going to do anything. My life isn't going anywhere. I'll never succeed. I'll always be with these losers. I'll, you know, whatever. And adults will do the same thing. You know, we get into a bad relationship. We get into some bad habits. We get addicted to some things. I'll just always be this way. I'll always be hooked on this. I'll always be with, with people who hurt me or whatever. Paul was a master at painting a picture and saying, oh, no, no, let me help you see what, what God is doing and what your life's going to be as parents and as friends. This is what we need to do is to help those that we love develop a vision for what they're going to be. You know, there are so many pastors that when they preach, they love to just, you know, be negative and just... And, 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 and you know, the way that they cover that is by going, I just love to tell it how it is. And bless your hearts, there are a lot of church people who've been under that for so long that they think that's good preaching. And it's like, I just love a preacher who just stomps on my toes the whole time. And I'm like, you know what? Just telling it like it is, there's a moment where it has its place. But overall, you know what I'd rather hear? Somebody who tells it like it's going to be and how it ought to be than just telling it how it is. I'd rather somebody lift me up and tell me what Jesus is doing and is going to do than beat me up for all that I have done. I know what I have done. I'm more encouraged about what Jesus is doing and is going to do. And Paul developed that vision in people. I believe in you. I see the best in you. I, more than that, I see what Jesus is doing in you. And that brings us to the last thing that he did, and that was he was patient with people's progress. Mm. My personality type struggles with this. I'll get hung up on partial progress. I get so focused in on what's still lacking. Paul was good at being able to praise partial progress. I mean, think about when your kids were real small. You know, you remember what, what it was like when they were like four or five years old and they would bring home the picture that they had drawn for you in preschool. And, you know, you're looking at it going, you know, and they're like, look at my picture, Daddy. You know, do you like it? And you're looking at it going, wow, yeah. That's great. And you're thinking, it's got to be a dinosaur. And then they go, it's of you. <laughs> you know, how do you evaluate how much praise you give for that picture? Well, you evaluate it based on the fact that it's a four-year-old, right? You don't compare it to a Picasso and go, well, you know, there's really a lot of stuff that, you know, you've got to work on the eyes here. And, you know, I don't have a tail. And you, you, don't, you don't pick out all the stuff that's wrong. You praise the progress and the efforts. Because it's a four-year-old. And so you give an appropriate response for a four-year-old. Paul was a master at doing this. So the final helpful hint of the day is this. Celebrate how far people have come rather than judging them for how far they still have to go. Don't you appreciate it when people do that in your life? When you know, oh, there's still so much that's wrong. And yet somebody can give you a pat on the back and encourage the good that they see in you. Well, Folks love when we do that for them. 
when we don't wait for them to mature, and thankfully God doesn't wait for us to mature before He loves us and accepts us, Paul was incredibly patient with the believers that he was discipling. And I want to just leave you with the final verse for the day where the key to this patience came from. He says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. Underline the, the phrase, feel this way. It's right for me to feel this way because I have you in my heart. You ever noticed how people who are around you a lot, they wind up in one of two places. They, they wind up either in your heart or on your nerves. Isn't that the truth? You know, the people who aren't in your, in your heart tend to get on your nerves. And Paul said he's able to be really patient with these people because I feel this way because you're in my heart. I've noticed this. When I pray for somebody regularly, it may be somebody who gets on my nerves when I pray for them regularly. They work their way into my heart. It's amazing how that happens. You start praying for somebody who gets on your nerves and watch how they work their way into your heart. You start expressing gratitude and looking for the things to be thankful for about that person who gets on your nerves and you watch them creep into your heart. It'll happen. I'll point out one final practical truth related to this. Many of the relationship problems that we have, oftentimes this will define the problems between men and women. It comes back to this basic concept of having you in my heart, feeling as I do about you. Men, how many times have you had a conversation with your wife or your girlfriend that went something like this, that, that she came to you and said, oh, I've just got to tell you something. I am so concerned about this. I am so afraid of this. I am so worried about this. I, and she's saying how she feels. And you think about that and you respond with an intelligent thought to set the record straight. And in response to, I feel so worried, I feel so afraid about this thing. And essentially what we say in response is, well, honey, that's just dumb. You shouldn't feel that way, and here's why. And we explain the facts of the situation and why it's so foolish that you would feel that way. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us have done that? Pretty much every man in the room. Where did that get you? Nowhere. That never gets you to a better place in the relationship, does it? Why? Because she was talking from her heart. She was saying what she felt, and we answered with our heads. She was saying, I'm feeling something. I'm feeling great distress. And in response, we were, well, there's no reason for you to feel distressed. Let me give you the three reasons why. That's a dumb response on your part. That's a head response to a heart issue. Here's a real common response that we'll get to that disconnect. You just don't understand, right? Isn't that the kind of, kind of answer that you get back? You just don't understand. To which we as men go, what are you talking about? I don't understand. I just explained it to you. Of course I understand. You're the one who doesn't understand. And what we've got to understand, guys, is that the statement, you don't understand, doesn't mean what you think it means. Because you don't understand doesn't have anything to do with head knowledge. You don't understand means literally, 
I wanted you to feel my pain and you don't feel and understand my pain. I didn't want you to feel my pain so you would hurt. I just wanted you to understand how I'm feeling. I wanted you to understand how I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling afraid. And I just needed to know that you could appreciate how I'm feeling, not for you to come in and tell me how dumb it is that I feel the way that I feel. Paul said, I make the choice to let you in my heart and to consciously decide to feel what you feel. You'll be patient with someone when you let yourself feel what they feel. If you respond with your head, and we as men are notorious for this, you'll be impatient. Well, you just ought to do the right thing. You ought to be on time. You ought to do this. You ought to, because it's the right thing to do. Well, it may be the right thing to do. But if you could pause and let yourself consider where that person's coming from, what they're going through, what they're dealing with. If you just let them inside your heart and let yourself feel what they feel, you'd be so much more patient, so much more understanding, and then so much more ready to encourage them and to begin to give them what they need. Now, I said at the outset, these messages and this message today are not going to be complicated to understand. Wouldn't you agree? It's been easy to grasp. But it's all about the doing. Are you willing to start showing some appreciation, expressing it out loud, writing it down, saying it, to begin to pray for the people that, that you care about, and then to, to expect the best and, and call out the best for the people in your life? It makes a real difference. If you'll put this into practice, I promise it'll strengthen relationships, and there's this wonderful byproduct of joy and happiness that'll spill over into our lives as Christ is being formed in us. Would you join me as we bow together in prayer? Lord, you are so good. And we look to you and we find the one who is always faithful, who is always steady, and who is always longing to supply what we need. And we just admit, wow, do we need more of you in us. I pray for heavy hearts, for people who are in this room today, people who are watching or listening online who have really struggled with finding joy, any kind of lasting happiness, satisfaction in life, who have feel just beaten up and disappointed by people. And I pray today, Lord, that you administer comfort and encouragement and real hope today. I pray that today, Lord, you would begin to give us a glimpse of life that is better than what we know today. Not because we chase after whatever would make us happy, but because we have begun to buy into the truths of Your Word and Your plan for our lives. And God, I pray that in very practical ways You would help us to apply what we've looked at today. Lord, I know if we can't live out our faith in the relationships that we have with people, it isn't worth anything. And so I ask You by the power of Your Holy Spirit to give us discernment where we need to apply these truths and the, the guts to stick to it and to live this stuff out. Right now, Lord, for every person listening, I pray that you would call to mind the face or the name of somebody in particular that we need to give thanks for. And that you, Holy Spirit, would help us to recognize what it is that makes that person and our relationship with them special. Holy Spirit, I ask you to just, as a gift to us, that you would call to remembrance throughout each day of this week and beyond, just the need that we have to be praying for the people around us. 
And I pray that You'd begin to transform how we think, that we would learn to expect and believe in and call out the best in one another. We won't do any of these things worth a hoot if You don't empower us and lead us in that. So Holy Spirit, we offer ourselves to You and we pray, fill us up, lead us and use us. Strengthen the relationships we have with each other and with You. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.